0: Hello, everyone. This is Eric Lawrenson. I produce podcasts here at the Cap Times. Lindsay is taking a short break from the studio this month. So in the meantime, we're going to be revisiting some of our favorite Corner Table episodes from the past two years. Today, we're bringing you Lindsay's interview with Bayfield author and blogger Mary Doherty from September of last year. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison produced by the Capital Times. When you live in a town of 500 people on the shores of Lake Superior and you get a craving for Vietnamese pho, you got to learn to make it yourself that's what my guest today did. Mary Doherty is the author of Life in a Northern Town, published this past August by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. She's a fantastic photographer. She's a former owner of Good Time Restaurant in Bayfield. She's an advocate for sustainable agriculture, and she's an amazing, wide-ranging, curious cook. I am your host, Cap Time's food writer, Lindsay Christians, and I had such a good time talking with Mary this week. Enjoy! Welcome,
2: welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Not welcome. Hello is what I meant to say.
1: So, first of all, just tell us a little bit about how life in a northern town came about. Like, how how did this book come to be?
2: Well, it's kind of a funny story, like a lot of the stories in my life. But it, I used to own a restaurant in Bayfield, Wisconsin, and at the and kind of the process of the tail end of my time there, I was trying to find a way to bring myself back into my own kitchen. Back into who I was before I started the crazy life that a restaurant for me turned out to be. And to do and to do that, I started spending more time outside with my camera, taking pictures and cooking for my family again. With the ironic thing is I think my kids ate more frozen pizza when I owned a <laughs> restaurant than they ever have in their life. I mean it was I was never home for dinner. And so it was really good to kind of put that proverbial steak in the ground back into my kitchen and just start cooking again. And so I started a blog called The Cookery Maven. And I did that. Well, it's still going on kind of intermittently now, but um, for a while it was just it was a fun way to explore what I used to love so much. And then uh, about 2014, I think, or 15, I sent an email to the Wisconsin Historical Press at the um, behest of a friend of mine who owns a bookstore in Bayfield called Apostle Islands Booksellers. And she said, listen, I think your blog would make a really great book, and I think there's I have customers here that would like to buy it. And so I sent an email to Kathy Brokowski and Kate Thompson and said, literally, a cookbook of sorts from Bayfield, Wisconsin. And said, Hey, do you guys wanna take a look at my blog and tell me if you wanna publish a book? And to my utter shock, they said, looks interesting. Tell us
1: more. So one of the things that I found interesting, just kind of paging through the book and and getting a sense of it, you said that when you moved to Bayfield, when you moved to northern Wisconsin, if you wanted some of the things that you loved in the bigger city, you had to learn to make them yourself. Mm -hmm. So this is not your sort of typical northern Wisconsin cookbook.
2: No, <laughs> not at all. We I have five kids, and when we lived in Minneapolis, I had five kids in nine years. So I, there wasn't a whole lot of time for cooking, so we ordered a lot of takeout, and a lot of our takeout was Indian, Thai, Chinese. And in Bayfield, Wisconsin, I'm a town of 480-some people, there's not a lot of those restaurants. So I set out just doing research like anything, you know, searching on the Internet, looking at cookbooks, figuring out— What are the different techniques for mandarin pancakes for mushu pork? Or researching non-recipes. And just kind of through trial and error and having my kids tested. And my husband loves Vietnamese pho. And so that was the recipe I wanted to get right. Because he used to eat them, or he would go down onto University Avenue in St. Paul, and he would go to all these great Vietnamese restaurants, and he had a very particular idea of what it should taste like. And I remember when I got it just right, I was like, score! <laughs> so it's pretty fun.
1: So I I was recently chatting with uh, some young folks who are taking over an older farm operation out near Spring Green, and they were saying that people who want good food in rural parts of Wisconsin have to figure out how to grow it and make it themselves. And so I'm I'm wondering about your relationships with some of the farmers in the area where you live, some of the producers. Did those develop? You know, as after you moved to Bayfield, did you find that you had to like find a good source for? you know, the bones for the beef stock and things like that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you, could, you know, the beef bones come from a um, some farmers in Mellon, which is about probably like maybe an hour from my house. The, you know, the fish that we eat comes from Boating's Fishery, which is in Bayfield. The vegetables come from, all, you know, we have quite a few community-supported agriculture Groups, so you just you, eventually you, when you when you land in a small town, everything is kind of foreign, especially coming from St. Paul, where I knew my my Greek grocery store was on Lindale and Lake. I knew, you know, my Mex- Mexican grocery store was here. My I mean, I had I had I had mapped my surroundings because I'd lived there my whole life, and it took a while to map my home in Bayfield, and it's it's a lot of where would you get that or tell me about that one or who do you know and then all of a sudden you realize that you've developed a network.
1: So this is not uh, a typical Wisconsin historical press sort of book in that it's not what I think of as like a traditional kind of linear history of Mm -hmm. a place. Um, And and you have kind of a different philosophy about that, right?
2: I I know. I don't think it's much. I kind of, I was kind of surprised when they said they wanted to publish it, the historical press, because I was like, I don't really know much, a lot about history. But I do know a lot about my culture. I don't have any family up there. I mean, we literally, it sounds schmaltzy and hokey, but it's honest-God truth. When we pulled into that harbor in 2000, I literally had a feeling like, like, you know when you put Legos together? It was like that click. Like, I knew I was home. And I've never felt that before in my life. And so coming into the, a place like this, wide-eyed, not no no backstory, not really understanding the cultural tensions and the cultural, you know, uh, synchronicities that happen. So I kind of navigated that on my own and it made me think a little bit about what if we looked at history differently? What if we didn't look at it in a linear fashion, like a straight line? What if we looked at it in a dynamic space, in a three-dimensional, moving, constantly evolving arena where you don't get to put your steak down and say, I'm here because there's nothing to put your steak into because it's moving and it's evolving. And you are lucky enough to be there to be part of that evolution process. But that's pretty much it.
1: This book spans so many different kind of cultural influences. There's, you know, sh- maple syrup from the, the trees that are up there. There's there's whitefish, a great recipe for whitefish. Um, but there's also curry that's been blended by yeah, and a friend of yours, yeah, right? Elf. And Alf yeah, <laughs> <laughs> curry. Elf. curry. Um and you know, there's so there's a, like a curried carrot soup. You you got obsessed with tahine mm-hmm. like midway through and all of a sudden tajin <laughs> is showing up. Everywhere. Um, which is just a lovely sort of is a Mexican spice of right? yeah. chili and lime. It, yeah, it's so
2: good. I, that was a sugar bush margarita is when I when I came and when I started um learning about it. It's so good. And you're right. I did get a little obsessed with it. It's everywhere. <laughs> but
1: there's so many different, um, I think, influences. And, uh, you you know, some of the reaction to the book has been, well, this isn't, you know, northern Wisconsin cuisine. But I would imagine that you'd argue back that, that this is exactly what it is.
2: And that speaks more to the dynamic nature and not looking at food in a linear way and realizing that, sure, there are people in Bayfield that would have more traditional what you'd think of a northern Wisconsin um Meal plan in their kitchen, but I have something that's a little bit more spicy, you know, a little bit more, um, you know, drawing its inspirations from a little bit wider arena, and I think that's what makes it cool that we can that it can exist together. That's the dynamic nature I was talking about. It doesn't need to be to have an artificial binary choice between northern Wisconsin or ethnic. They can exist cheek to jowl, and they probably they should. Because that's what creates resilient communities is recognizing that everyone's voice, everyone's table, the diversity there is its greatest, is your community's greatest strength. For
1: sure. When you were developing some of the recipes in the book, did you have some that were like just really big hits with your family that they absolutely loved that were exciting to them?
2: Well, the funny thing is, is that I really didn't. Write the recipes for a book. That's a strange thing. I mean, I had when by the time I'd contacted the historical press, I had half the book pretty much written just from pulling things from the blog, and um, so by the time we the book, you know, I'm a beautiful procrastinator. I'm really, <laughs> really good at it. So, but as we got closer to the manuscript time, I just started trying to fill in. Um, like, what should I? What should I make? It wasn't. It didn't. the The first part of the book was much more of a chilled out sort of like I'm just gonna make this. And towards the end, I was like, I think I need to have a wild rice recipe. Or I think I need to do this. But um, the recipes that my kids that I did develop was um, the curried carrot soup. Because of my uh, work in factory farming, it really changed the way we eat and meat. We don't need as much meat as we used to. And so my daughter is a vegetarian, and she's also dairy intolerant. And so we that curried carrot soup we have that all the time, and um, my son who isn't dairy intolerant loves the gnocchi mac and cheese.
1: I was going to say yeah. I wanted to talk about that. That's so. I think that it's interesting in part because it seems like living here in Madison, when kind of comparing it to to the seasons that are reflected in the book mm-hmm. um it's it's a little bit more extreme but also it's really nice to see something that's seasonal and midwestern because so many of the cookbooks that I'm obsessed with cookbooks but like so many of the cookbooks that I use and I look at it's like everything is in season all the time or if yeah. or if it is a seasonal book as as some are getting to be more seasonal it's not my
2: seasons. <laughs> and try living in northern Wisconsin. <laughs> right. Being my Roma tomatoes I don't think they're gonna get red this year because it's been so cold and wet up there it's finally warm I guess. So uh, since well earlier this week it started so maybe my tomatoes will start to ripen but it is like when summer's over I just don't have access to, I mean, I can buy supermarket tomatoes, but they make me sad sometimes because when you know what a tomato tastes like from the garden, it's kind of hard to replicate that amazingness. So a lot of it ends up coming down into preservation. You know, I roast a lot. I, I um, I don't like canning tomatoes for some reason, but I love roasting them and then vacuum sealing and throwing them in your freezer. You can roast them with kind of making like a confit. With, But I don't keep them out. I put them in the freezer. But then you just throw them in pasta sauce or meatloaf or quiche or whatever you want. And it's so – I mean, that's – but, yeah, the seasons are definitely very strongly delineated up there.
1: Have you developed a strong group of sort of fellow cooks and people who like to sort of cook for their their families and their friends? Um, And is that kind of part of how you get inspiration for new things? Like, what was – I guess – You know, what is it like to have to sort of build that community in order to get more,
2: like, variety in your culinary life? People always ask me, what do you do in the winter? And the winter is when we do have more time to have dinner at each other's houses and hang out and talk, have a more of a slower pace. Summer is crazy. I mean, summer into probably mid-fall is really, really busy for everyone I know because most people's jobs are, you know, tuned to tourism, and so we're pretty busy. And then in the winter is when we'll have, like, a, we used to have a pagan dinner club. We would, you know, go to um, the curry party at Alf's Place. And then, you know, they bring venison and shrimp. And the Bayfield community is a little bit different in that it's not made up of a bunch of joiners. It's not the kind of place that you want, like people are wanting to be part of a club. I mean, things, seems to ha- things seem to happen up there much more organically, not necessarily planned. So all of a sudden you might find yourself visiting someone and then it just turns out to be this amazing night because it just happened. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. but It
1: does. It does. Um, what were your goals with publishing this book? Like, you know, obviously you, you got the recommendation from your friend at the bookstore, but
2: why, why did you want to do this book? I wanted to explore deeper what it means to feed yourself and the consequences for your community. And the story of the book kind of became very much intertwined with my work, which is I work for a socially responsible agriculture project in Oregon. We're a nonprofit that helps support communities around the country dealing with factory farming. So I had this kind of um, very two-polar opposite ways of looking at the food. Like my SRAP work is very much predicated in policy and EPA rules and all this stuff, this very linear stuff, and then over here talking about cooking, which is more my heart and my passion. And I try. I was spent a lot of time thinking, how can I marry those two together? And how I brought them together was just asking people to recognize it. All food comes from some place, and that place is someone's home. And so we need to make choices around food, not because we feel better when we shop at a co-op. We need to make better choices around food because our choices have consequences for people who have kids and grandkids and they have homes and they have dreams. And we need to be doing what we can to support our wider community. When
1: you were putting the recipes into the book and kind of choosing the structure of the book, um, was there concern sort of about making everything really accessible to folks or, you know, making things
2: easily understandable? Like, who was your reader? Kate, my editor, she was so good because she kept telling me you're not writing a manifesto because I do tend towards manifestos, <laughs> unfortunately. Very strident language. And um, so she helped me kind of retune the essays and then bring, bring, bring softening my message a little bit um, helped me make the food a little bit more accessible. We did think a lot about, um, you know, is this something someone can get? Do, you know... I'll go research and I'll go to the ends of the earth to get some obscure ingredient because that's what I like to do. But I think that that puts food in a space where someone would say, I can't do that. And my hope for the book was that people could find at least something that they thought, okay, that makes sense, I can do this. Because I think, I feel that we put, that when we elevate food above us and our community and our homes and our space, that elevation creates space for dysfunction. It creates space for I can't do that, or I would never do that, or I don't know anything about that. And I don't ever want to put anyone in a space where they feel like they can't do or cook what I'm doing in my kitchen.
1: Yeah, I I, sometimes when I cook for friends of mine, um, and they're just they're very grateful that I have made Mm -hmm. food and I I don't think of it as, like, being some extraordinary thing. It was just, oh, I, you know, made a couple of extra chicken thighs. Like, it's, yeah. you know, and it, it doesn't seem like a complicated thing. But especially if people aren't comfortable cooking for themselves, it feels like something more complicated or or bigger than it needs to be, Isn't that
2: weird? I totally agree with you. I really think about that a lot because um, people tell me frequently, well, I want to have you over for dinner, but I'm scared to cook for you. And that makes me sad because I think what, first I think about my messaging. What am I saying that makes people think that I'm so hypercritical or that I would be judging what they're doing? And on the other hand, I think what are we doing with food where we're wrapping food, which is really to me a conduit to community and connection? Why are we adding, why are we putting shame in there and judgment? And I think that that is, goes down to, back to this, you know, this idea of elevating food in the Instagram world and the Pinterest and making these things to to the average person and to me, I cannot, Pinterest makes me sad. I don't even like opening that thing because I don't know how to, you know, my food doesn't look like that and I think that that's something we need to talk about. Food is policy. Food is justice. There's There's a lot of subtext to what you stick on your plate and I'd like to, if I could do anything with this book, I'd like to kind of bust that open a little bit. I don't have any answers. I'm not saying I have anything to contribute that's this material, but I want to be involved in the conversation.
1: It was interesting to me as I read the book to to learn so much about you and your kind of personal life and your personal experiences. You know, I know the name of your dog. And George. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that you love Spanish red wine. And, you know, that that you like to take these photography trips with your son, Will. And it's it's interesting, uh, sometimes the posts would start out with, you know, we're going off to find photographs of a waterfall, and then it would turn and and talk a little bit about something that you learned. How did you decide how much personal information or personal, of the personal side to include in this book?
2: Well, I did struggle with that, to be perfectly frank, because um, I'm not my normal Human state is not a vulnerable person. And I've, as I've gotten older, and 48 years on this planet has taught me that um, I want to be in that space of vulnerability. I want to be in that space of saying, here I am, good, bad, and different. This is what I know. This is what I've learned. This is how I've gotten there. And feeling like that's enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. There's this great Leonard Cohn song called Anthem. And he talks about that that's the there's cracks in everything because that's how the light gets in. And I think that is how we need to be as a people to create community and create some sort of common ground in a world that's deeply fractured.
1: If these recipes were to start conversations, uh, what are the kinds of conversations that you hope start happening around them?
2: I hope that people look at them and think, First of all, what who is this lady from Bayfield? What the hell? Like what she needs curry from a, a a forester's you know, a geologist's house, like all this the crazy back to that dynamic nature, that nonlinear nature of a life and not trying to stick it in a bucket or a silo. And knowing that you can just, just go with it. You know, if you, it make for me it makes perfect sense that there's pork vindaloo, a sugar bush margarita, and waffles in In a, you know in the recipe, because that's my life, and food is a way of telling the story and the story Mary Doherty's story in Bayfield with the five kids and Ted, my husband, and naughty dogs and all that is told you know in the food that we eat, the places we visit, yeah. and I would hope that people can find something in there that they can they can knit themselves in
1: life in northern town. It is around Madison. People can find it, right?
2: The book is available at the Wisconsin Historical Press shop, and it's in bookstores. And if you want a, um, a personalized book, you can buy it on my website, and I'll write whatever you want in there. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Yeah, I know. It'd be funny, though, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, it'd be great, actually. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming
2: down. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the corner table you can find us on itunes or anywhere else you find podcasts do be sure to leave us a rating or a review also be sure to check out our other podcasts here at the cap times like wedge issues or the mad splainers the music for the corner table was composed by patrick christians Lindsay will be back soon with new episodes thanks again for tuning in